welcome everyone. And I will let you know what's coming up both today and next week and then in the weeks beyond. And we will get into our material for today. The reason we have four classes going on today and last week and then one more week next is because we are between series. And often when we are between a longer series that I conduct in here, we take a few weeks to have what we call breakout sessions to cover issues that are of interest to particular demographics. So our church is not structured to have separate classes for young adult singles, young marrieds, on a perpetual basis. But we have those classes from time to time throughout the year because we recognize that there are issues that the Bible addresses that they need to know about and implement in their lives and in their homes, and so we want to provide that. But we don't want to segregate our church on a permanent basis into those kinds of classes. So normally we all meet together in here. Uh, but we're in the midst of those three weeks, having those then three classes and then uh, this one for us. That'll end next week, and then two weeks from today, we will start a new series. October 3rd, we'll start the series that is on the screen, How to Help Those Who Struggle with Fear and Anxiety. So during this hour, two weeks from today, everybody will be in here. We won't remove the chairs. And if you had stuff on the wings during the first hour and we had to move it and all that, you won't have to hassle with that. Uh, so that will start two weeks from today. So what are we covering in here then in the meantime, in these, uh, in these three weeks? I'll tell you about that and then we'll get into it. Uh, before I do, let me just make one announcement, and that is tonight at 5 o'clock is our uh, celebration dinner. That's our anniversary for our church. We celebrate that anniversary with a dinner in September every year, and tonight is it. And so any of you who would like to come to that, you are welcome to. We have, uh, by the generosity of our caterer, adding to the number that we gave at the deadline to allow any really latecomers to come, we have about 10 tickets left, I think, over at the table. Freya, Danita. We have about 10 tickets or so left, 12 tickets left, okay? <laughs> That's pretty good in tandem. That was great. <laughs> so we have 12 tickets available. If anybody would like those, uh, see the ladies uh, as you're, uh, before you leave today, okay? And that's tonight at 5 o'clock at the Westfield Activity Center in Trenton. It's behind the Trenton Library on, on West Road. So what are we doing in here? Uh, started last week, today, and then next week. One of the questions that I get asked very often by folks is they'll read a book by someone or they'll hear someone on the radio and they'll say, hey, have you ever heard of this author? Have you ever heard of this radio personality on Christian radio or something? And what do you think of them? And very often I have heard of them because I try to keep up on what's going on. Not always, but, but often. And usually what uh, the individual is looking for is an up or down. Is this a good person or is this a bad person? Is this a good person for me to listen to or a bad person for me to listen to? Is this, should I read books written by this person or not read books written by this person? And if you've ever asked me that question, which I'm sure some of you have because I, I get it often, uh, in the hallway or something, I sound like a bumbling idiot, no, undoubtedly. And one of the great things about always sounding like a bumbling idiot is people can't tell the difference. <laughs> but really, I feel that way when I'm trying to explain because for me it is almost never just up or down. Almost never. Now sometimes it is. There are some people who I can just pretty much I just say, you know, I've known this person long enough and I just say, you know, stay with that guy and you'll be okay. Some of you have heard me say John MacArthur is is one of those guys. 
if you stick with John MacArthur, you'll do pretty well. He's a, he's a radio teacher, he's written a lot of books, and sticks with the Bible, you know? So you, you can't go wrong with him. But outside of a few like that, there's always like something, some quirk, and it might not be a big quirk, it might be a little thing. And in the hallway, it's hard for me to explain that. So generally, I'll say, you know, yeah, that'll be good, and maybe we can talk some more about it sometime, or something like that. Now, what are those things? What are those quirks? Why is it not just always a straight up or, or down then? What kinds of things are we, are we talking about? Well, you know, this is related to the fact that if you were to, as I said last week, drive down the street, many of us are very confused by seeing just church after church with different names on them. So we're a Baptist church. Uh, but we've got friends who are Presbyterian and Methodist and Pentecostal and, and all sorts of things. And you see all of these different things. And just like you're trying to sort your way through different radio personalities and authors, you've got a friend who goes to this church and you passed it on the way here. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, again, you know, I'll sound like a bumbling idiot because much of that depends. So how do you sort through all of that? It's really something that, from a pastoral perspective, is important to me because we do have to navigate through these kinds of issues because we're confronted with all sorts of books and personalities and uh, friends who go to different churches, different denominations. Why do we have them? You know, where where do we stand vis-a-vis them? Do we not like them? Are you not supposed to hang around with people who aren't Baptist? You know, that kind of stuff. So it's important for me as a pastor for you to have some ideas to how to how to answer those. And so last week we talked about the fact that there are what some call, and it's a good phrase as far as I'm concerned, first order doctrines. There are doctrines, there are teachings that are just a first order. They're most important. They're priority doctrines. So these would be things that I, all of us would agree on that are just absolutely essential. The doctrine of salvation, the gospel, the good news, central to what Christianity is. And so we would all agree that things that relate to eternal destiny, salvation, the gospel, who Christ is, his person and his work, these are first order doctrines. Those are really important. If somebody has messed up on those, then I don't have to hesitate when I'm talking to you in the hallway. I can say, stay away from that person because they're messed up on first-order stuff, really important stuff. But often that's not where the difference lies. It often lies in something less than a first-order doctrine, but, and here's where it gets tricky, perhaps related to a first-order doctrine. So let's just delineate again some of these first-order doctrines. Well, who Jesus is, his person and work. He is God. And if somebody denies that, then they're denying an essential of the Christian faith, an essential of the gospel. Jesus is God. He's called in Scripture the Son of God, but but He is God the Son. God having come as man. So people need to understand God. Anybody denies that Jesus is God, and that the Father is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God, has denied who God is. And so we, we have troubles. Did you all know that T.D. Jakes, since I'm... Do you all know who that is? 
Do you all know he's a one, it's called oneness Pentecostal? Basically means we don't believe in the Trinity. So let me just tell you, don't don't mess with T.D. Jakes. If you were here a couple of weeks ago and I said my wife sent me to the Christian bookstore and I said I really don't like going to the Christian bookstore because all the ways Christianity is marketed and all the trinkets and the candy with the verses on it and you know if I want if I want verses and candy I'll read the Bible and eat a Snickers. <laughs> It'll taste better, it costs less. But there are T.D. Jakes books like that. He's got his latest book out. They are everywhere. Now, now, friends, that is heretical. To not believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as equally God. But we don't have much discernment in Christian circles these days. And so, anybody who's popular can sell books. So, there are these doctrines of the... The, the Trinity, the person and work of Christ. He is God the Son. But think about this. How do you know any of that? How do you know who Jesus is and what Jesus did? Where did you learn that? From what source did you get that? Well, it's from the Scriptures, right? So there's a sense in which a denial of the authority and the inerrancy of the Scriptures is related to the Gospel too, isn't it? Because the truth is I wouldn't know anything about the Gospel. I wouldn't know anything about the Christ of the Gospel. I wouldn't know anything about this God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit if I don't have a firm belief and understanding in the inspiration, the infallibility, and the inerrancy of Holy Scripture. So I think you guys will probably agree with me. That would now that's a first order doctrine. Christ, the Bible. But you move it down the next level, second order doctrines. Okay, I've got this Bible that's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, it tells me about the gospel, it is God's word, his communication to us. But I have to interpret it. And so now we get into an important but second order doctrine. How do I interpret this book? Are the prop do I interpret it literally? Or do I interpret it figuratively? And you find now that you get some differences among good people. About passages in the Bible, people who believe that the Bible is God's word, but they interpret it in such a way that some of the things that it promises are not going to come true the way you think they are, the way that the way it on first reading looks. And I alluded to some of that last week if you were here. We won't turn there again, but for those who were not here, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And there you have God's covenant with Abraham, his agreement with Abraham. And he says, I am going to do, I, God, am going to do these things through you, Abraham. And I'm going to give you an offspring, and I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Do you all remember that? And I pointed out that God makes this promise to Abraham unilaterally. It's an unconditional agreement, an unconditional covenant. It's not, these things will happen, Abraham, if you're a good boy. It's, these things are going to happen, because I, God, am saying so. 
And then you come to Genesis 15, and we looked at that together last week. Genesis 15, verses 17 and 18. Genesis 15, 17 and 18. And you find God himself actually ratifying this agreement, this covenant that goes back to Genesis 12, with killing an animal, cutting it into pieces, walking in between the pieces. If you've ever read Genesis 15, if you haven't, go and read that. That's what happens there. And this is God himself ratifying this covenant that on my integrity as the God of the universe, the things that I have promised to you are going to happen. So this is unconditional. Well, one of the things he promises in Genesis 15, 17, and 18 is a piece of land. And it's a piece of land whose borders are very wide. They're actually given there from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. So now we believe the Bible, but what about these promises in the Bible and how do I interpret it? And I told you last week that some of our friends, and I say friends, good people, people we'll be in heaven with. People who I think will probably end up surprised at how it all turned out. <laughs> because of things like this. Things like saying, you know, God made that promise to give his people, the Jews, his chosen people, this land. But they lost the right to that when they rejected Jesus. That's what many of our, our friends say. Therefore, Israel has been, and this is their terminology, Israel has been, here's the word they use, replaced with the church. So it's called replacement theology. Israel has now been replaced by the church. Most of you, most of us here are not Jewish by ancestry. And so we are, we are not part of that seed, physical seed, through Abraham, to whom those promises were made. But some of our friends say, those promises of land are now done. They're not actually going to be fulfilled literally. Because Israel lost its shot, and it's now been replaced by the church. Well, is that a first order doctrine? It's not going to determine if you get to heaven or not. Right? You can be saved, you can be a Christian, you can be a good Christian. And be a replacement theology guy or gal. But does that mean it's unimportant? My view is it's still important. And it's primarily important because it relates to a first order doctrine. Namely, we believe that God has spoken in Scripture. And when God says He's going to do something, He does it. And if God really said, I'm going to give you this piece of property, I'm going to do this unconditionally, then I think He's still going to do that. And we showed you Romans 9, verses 25 and following. Excuse me, Romans 11, verses 25 and following where I believe Paul believes the same thing. That there has been, we saw last week, a hardness on the part of Israel, in part a partial hardness until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. you all remember that? And then all Israel will be saved. And God will then turn his attention back to his chosen people. And he will establish them in the land that he promised to them in something that we call the, the kingdom, the millennium. A thousand years, according to Revelation chapter 20. Now, first order doctrines. Christ, salvation, his person and work, 
But then there are these secondary and, and sometimes tertiary doctrines that even though they're not first order, they don't determine if you get to heaven or not, they're nonetheless important because they relate to some of these things. What about the truthfulness of the promises of, of God? Now, our church believes that those promises are going to be fulfilled. We believe in a pre-millennial return of, of Jesus. That he is going to come pre, prior to the establishment of this kingdom. And he's going to regather his, his people. And he's going to fulfill, literally, all the promises that he has made to his people. That's what our church officially believes. But we don't hate the people who disagree with us on that. And it doesn't make them horrible people. It just means we disagree, and I believe, and perhaps some of you do since you come to this church, believe they're wrong. But being wrong doesn't mean you're horrible. It's You're wrong about a second-order doctrine that relates to, I think, an important first-order doctrine. Now, I believe that for the reasons that I laid out last week and I've reiterated here. And let me give you another reason why I believe that, to continue now. Think about all of the predictions in the first part of your Bible that God has made and how those were fulfilled in the second part of your Bible, the New Testament. So can you think of predictions related to Jesus, for instance? The Messiah will come, and what are some of the things that were said in the Old Testament predicting hundreds of years before about Jesus? Well, he would be born, he would be born of a virgin. You all remember that? Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Was that literally fulfilled? Matthew chapter 1, verse uh, 18 through 23. The virgin is with child. You know, the angel appears to Joseph to explain what's going on because this literally was fulfilled. So the virgin birth was literally fulfilled. What about where Jesus would be born? Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 in your Old Testament. Micah 5 and verse 2. He will be born in a place called Bethlehem. Ephratah. Not to be confused with a different Bethlehem. He'll be born in this Bethlehem. Lo and behold, guess where he was born? Literally. He will die. He will suffer and die. Isaiah 53. We know he did, of course. But then we're given a bunch of we're given a bunch of predictions about what would happen with that. He will be pierced, we are told, by Zechariah. Jesus is literally pierced. Now you could go through dozens of predictions with regard to Jesus Christ alone, and every last one of them was fulfilled literally. Which leads me to expect this. That promises yet unfulfilled will be fulfilled, literally. That what God has said about his people, about Israel, will happen, and they will happen, literally just as the predictions about Jesus and his life and times were fulfilled, literally. And so that's what I mean by them. First order doctrines, second order doctrines. Now, you got lots of good people who disagree with me about what I just said. I mentioned R.C. Sproul last week. And I just love reading R.C. Sproul's books and listening to R.C. Sproul on the radio. And I went to conferences, I told you, that he's been at. And he's just a terrific teacher. But I disagree with him about that. 
most of our, the vast majority of our Presbyterian friends don't believe what I just told you. They don't believe in a premillennial return of Christ. and they, Most of them do not. But I'm going to a Presbyterian seminary to get a, a, another degree. And I've met very good friends there. And in June, the guy who's my doctor of ministry advisor was in town. And I spent a couple days with him. And I really enjoyed my time with him. And we argued about stuff. And, and, and But I really enjoyed it. And he's a good brother in the Lord. Okay, So we'll be in heaven. And we'll all get that figured out. But in the meantime, we got to decide where, where are we going to be on this. And if you come to me and you say, is R.C. Sproul a good guy or a bad guy? He's a good guy for the most part. <laughs> but you got this millennial thing going on. Right? So first order doctrines, second order doctrines, and to me the ones that are most important are those that relate to the, the first order doctrines. Things like our belief in the Bible and its literal fulfillment are important. Now, I want, I'd like to go to a second issue today and then we'll probably have to finish it next week. But a second issue beyond the millennial issues, the kingdom, the fulfillment of the land promises, and how you interpret the Bible. We believe the Bible, but then we have to decide how we're going to interpret it. And so this millennial issue relates to that. But here's another issue related to our belief in the Bible. For how many things is the Bible sufficient for the Christian life. Or to put it in shorthand, do you believe in the what we normally call the sufficiency of Scripture? Now we say, yeah, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Let's make sure we know what we mean by that. That the Bible is all that it's sufficient. It's all that is required for life and godliness for the Christian. Everything we need, God has given us in the Scriptures. That's what we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture. And where do we get, you know, that notion? Well, the scriptures say, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Verse 17. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for, and then there's these last three words that are really important. How many good works? Every good work. So the scriptures make the claim about themselves that they contain what we need for how many good works? Every good work. Therefore, we not only believe that the scriptures are inspired, authoritative, inerrant, we also believe they are sufficient. Okay, we're all good with that. And, and I think most of us would say, man, that's a first order. It's really closely related to a first order, at least. It's between a first and a second, maybe. So what kinds of things would affect that? What kinds of things would diminish or could potentially take away from our understanding of the sufficiency of the Scriptures? Can any of you think of anything, contemporary stuff that people do, otherwise good people, friends of yours, friends of mine, go to different churches, stuff they do, that might suggest that the scriptures are not all we need. Anybody? What about people who have God talk to them? People who believe in the gift of prophecy. 
that we, that we have prophets today. To whom God speaks and speaks outside of Scripture. Well, now I, it would appear I need the Scriptures and I might need something else. I might need someone else. Now, you, you all know that this is a really big deal, that people believe that there are prophets to whom God speaks. The people on TV do it all the time. God said to me this, God said to me that. Joyce Meyer, here's God talking to her all the time. This and that. Virtually all these people who are on TV, God speaks to them. And then they tell us what God spoke to them about. Well, is the scripture sufficient? If, if we need prophecy as well. Hmm. Now, will you go to heaven? If you've trusted Christ, but you believe in that you've got the gift of prophecy? Be sure. But is that an important doctrine? Related to our view of the sufficiency of Scripture? I would say it is. And so I want to go through some passages that bear upon that issue. Then, so that you can be clear on why it is that at least I don't believe that we have prophets. I don't believe we have God speaking to people. I believe that God has spoken in the pages of Scripture. And He has given us His book. And when 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 say it is sufficient for every good work it's just that now I should give you a disclaimer here some of you know that I grew up Pentecostal so I didn't grow up as a Baptist I became a Baptist uh, but I grew up in Pentecostal circles where we had God speaking to people all the time God spoke to people they would stand up and say thus saith the Lord and I just get all shook up when I say that and they would say, thus saith the Lord and give some prophecy. Today you get people on TV doing the same thing. Benny Hinn does it all the time. God said this to me. And uh, sometimes Benny's wrong. I mean, just, sometimes Benny's wrong. You know, Benny said, the Holy Spirit was talking to him. I've got the transcript. He's at a big meeting. The Holy Spirit's talking to him. And he says that the Holy, I've got Holy Spirit revelation coming on me. That's what he said. And then he says, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each a trinity. Well, if you can do the math. <laughs> and, and Benny did the math and said, quote, what I'm saying is there's nine of them. So then he was asked a couple weeks later, and Benny said, oh, that was a dumb statement. Well, here's the thing. Back in the Old Testament, if you claimed to be a prophet and you were wrong, you know what the punishment was? You got killed. We could clear the airwaves pretty quickly <laughs> if we just go back to that. But you got people who have God talking to them. And this relates to a first order doctrine with regard to the sufficiency of Scripture. So where, where are we or where am I on that? If you take a look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14. You haven't heard a word I've said. You've just been wondering if I'm going to take a drink of the coffee the whole time. John chapter 14. 
And as we look at John 14, if you were here when we went through the Gospel of John over a couple of years, a couple of years ago, it took about two years to do it, you'll remember that beginning of John 14, all the way through the end of John 17, everything that happens in those four chapters, 14, 15, 16, and 17, everything that happens takes place on one night. It's all Jesus gathered with his final follower, his, his first followers, on the day before his crucifixion. And so it's the night before Jesus is crucified, and he's giving instructions to his, his first followers. And he says to them, down in verse 25, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, I just want to ask you if that promise... Now, who's Jesus talking to again? Remember who he's talking to. He's in this upper room the night before he dies, and he is talk, he's just instituted the chapter before, chapter 13, the Last Supper. So he's got his 12 apostles there. He's talking to the 12 apostles. And he's giving them all of these instructions about what's going to happen after he departs. One of which is, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who will, verse 26, teach you all things and remind you of everything. My question to you is this. Is that a promise for you? Ken, or Marty, or Carrie, or Janet? He's going to remind you of everything. Do you, anybody here have the gift of being reminded of everything that Jesus said? <laughs> Jim says his wife reminds him of everything. <laughs> She's the counselor <laughs> in the Sturgill home. <laughs> She's not retaliating. That's very good. I know you guys aren't sitting together, though. <laughs> Now, now, what's the deal with these guys? Jesus is giving these guys some special instructions and some special abilities because these guys are going to do some special things. One of the things they're going to do is they're going to write Scripture. And they're going to have to have perfect recall of what Jesus said. You don't have perfect recall. I don't either. Further, I haven't written any books of the Bible. These guys did. If I wrote one, if I wrote a 67th and said, I think this ought to be added, I wouldn't get very far unless I was on TV. <laughs> I mean, that's probably the next thing. Send in your 100 bucks and get the 67th book of the Bible. But I wouldn't get very far, right? And rightly so, because I don't have the qualifications these guys have. Now, what made these guys so special? Jesus calls 12. Judas was one. Of course, he betrays. But what do they do? They replace Judas. Many people don't know that because it's kind of an obscure passage in Acts chapter 1. But immediately, Judas is replaced by a guy named Matthias. And they were just called in the Gospels very often. And then when you go to the book of Acts, this group is just called the 12. And then for a period of time, they're called the 11. 
And then there's a 12 again. Now my point is, when you are in a group that's just known as the 11, or the 12, you're in a pretty special group, aren't you? We don't even have to name all of them. We just say the 12, and people know who we're talking about. Why? Because these guys were commissioned to do special things to establish God's church, one of which was to write scripture that would require perfect recall, and Jesus is telling them, do not fear. I'm going to equip you with everything you need. Now, as you move forward in scripture, then, you're going to find this special commission of these guys mentioned several times. And I'd like to show some of that to you. So take a look, if you will, at... 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 12. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. 2 Corinthians 12, and throughout 2 Corinthians, as a matter of fact, Paul, who wrote it, is defending himself against detractors, people who said, that Paul really doesn't have authority, Paul really is not uh, all he's cracked up to be, you shouldn't follow Paul. There were people who had come into the church at Corinth who were saying that. He wrote this letter of 2 Corinthians to refute that. Sir? Well, I'll get to Paul, yeah, thank you, that's a good good question. Because here I am beating on, oh, there's the 12, and then it's like, well, wait a minute, we call him the Apostle Paul, so where does he fit in? And I'll, I'll deal with that in just a second, but it's a good question. But don't let me leave without dealing with it, but I will deal with it. So he's, he is addressing this whole issue of uh, his apostleship, his authority. And notice what he says in verse 12 of chapter 12. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? And then sarcastically he says, forgive me of this wrong. But notice what he says. I did the things that, and this is important, things that mark an apostle. Now notice, if they mark everybody, then they can't specially mark an apostle, can they? If everybody does miracles, if everybody does signs, if everybody does wonders, then these things cannot serve to specially mark out an apostle. Paul's saying, I did the things that show that I am one of this group, the things that mark an apostle. Now, it does raise the question of, okay, you got the 12, and then you got Paul, who seems like a 13th. And he is a, he is a 13th. So what does Paul say about that? Well, one, he's defending the fact that he's an apostle here. But also, if you look at 1 Corinthians, just turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, this passage that's very famous about the gospel, I want to remind you, verse 1 says, verse 1, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, and so on. And if you go down, he talks about the resurrection of Christ and him appearing, and then he says, verse 7, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last he appeared to me also, As to one abnormally born. (laughs) What's the abnormally born part? I was made an apostle after all the rest of them were. And the next verse says this. I am not least 
I am least of the apostles. So I persecuted the church. And these guys were called on the beaches of, you know, the beach of Galilee. Matthias was chosen right after Jesus ascended. And here I am much later after having persecuted the church. But nonetheless, I'm an apostle as well. And for your own study, if you want to go to 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9, there Paul says, am I not an apostle? And the implied answer is yes. Verse 1, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the risen Lord? 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1. So Paul considers himself part of this select group. But the larger point is, it's a select group. Now, how select is it? They can do special things that we can't do. They're reminded of everything. They can do these signs and wonders and all of that stuff. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20. I'll read verse 19. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's peoples, God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The foundation. Built on who? It's a special group of people with special abilities. Now I'm going to give you a couple other verses on that in our remaining time, but think about what the apostles were able to do. Signs, wonders, miracles. You say, my, you know, the dude I send 50 bucks a month to, he can do that too. Kenneth Copeland can do that. Well, number one, no, he can't. Uh, just to be perfectly blunt, these guys fake stuff. Okay, is that straight enough for you? They fake stuff. Um, but further, they can't do what the apostles did anyway because there's stuff they can't fake. The stuff they can fake, they fake. But there's stuff they can't fake. Let me give you two of them. One, they can't write a book of the Bible. So give that a whirl, Apostle Kenneth. But they also can't raise anybody from the dead. Have you ever noticed that? Now there's, you know, legs getting longer. Have you ever watched one of these? You know, there it goes. You see this? And then there's and the legs split, and you're like, I didn't see anything happen there. And there's a little trickery, a little camera action going on with the leg getting... So the, the leg grew in a couple inches or something. This is a miracle. But here's the big one. Tell somebody who's dead to get up and walk. And, and nobody's been able to do that. It's just an amazing thing. Now, you know what they do when it doesn't work? You know, when somebody doesn't get healed? Why didn't they get healed? They didn't have enough faith. Well, see, you can't blame the dead guy. <laughs> and, hey, dude, you got to cooperate here. <clears throat> it just can't be faked. But the, ap the apostles could do that. They actually did it. Peter said to a dead teenage girl, Arise. And she gets up and walks. There isn't one of these guys who can do that. And here's why. Because they're not apostles. They can't write scripture. They can't raise people from the dead. Because they are a select group of people. And I said I'll give you a couple more passages. And I will right after I say this. That means this. 
that you then are, if you believe what I just said, that the apostles were a select group of people who could do things that people today can't do. One of which is raise people from the dead. Another of which is write scripture. If you believe that, then you are a cessationist. That's a fancy term that means you believe that certain things that happened 2,000 years ago in the first century have ceased. They happened then because those guys were around and they did them. But they don't happen now. You are a cessationist. Certain things have ceased. Certain things are different. They were for a foundational period of time to begin the church, Acts 2.20. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles. They had abilities to do those things, write scripture, raise people from the dead. But we don't, those things don't happen now because those guys aren't around now. And it was them who could do it. If you believe certain things happened then that can't happen now, you are a cessationist. Now, we, the two terms that are used for those who believe there's still prophecy and tongues and these kinds of gifts going on are you're either a cessationist, which is what I am, and if you believe the things I just said, you are too, the other term is a continuationist. As the name suggests, now these, these things continue. They've continued for 2,000 years. My retort is, if they've continued for 2,000 years, let's see it. Let's see the book. Let's see the raised dead person. Let's see the drinking deadly poison. Mark 16, and it will not harm you. Here you go. <laughs> Chug that down. Let's see what happens. But you got your continuationist friends, you got cessationists. Those are the two two camps. Now, are you going to heaven? Can you go to heaven and be a continuationist? Absolutely. I believe my dad is in heaven. My dad was a Pentecostal preacher. And my dad, one, my dad didn't go to Bible college and so forth. He wasn't a learned man, but he was a good man. And in the church I was in, most of the people were self-taught and so on. So he didn't even know the things we're talking about right now. But he knew Jesus. And I believe he's in heaven. And I believe I will see him in heaven. But I believe he was wrong about this stuff. So it's a, it's, it's a doctrine that doesn't determine whether you get to heaven, but it's still not unimportant, is it? Now, two more passages and we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. 1 through 4. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by, now do you guys see this phrase? By who? Those who heard him. Who would they be? They would be the apostles. And then verse 4 says, God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Spirit. And these guys who heard him, the apostles, had special abilities to do stuff people can't do today. One last passage. 
It's Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. In verse 14. Revelation 21 is the second to the last chapter in your Bible. You have the millennium is over. The thousand years that's talked about in chapter 20. You have the new Jerusalem. New heaven and a new earth. And the new Jerusalem and its dimensions are described in detail in chapter 21. And verse 14 says this. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now look, that's a pretty exclusive group. I'm just telling you. There's no... Apostle Leroy, no Apostle Benny, 12 of these. You get to the end, and they're still special. They were special 2,000 years ago. These guys are still a special group. Nobody can replicate what these guys did. Now, any of you who are still awake at this point might be thinking, does Paul get to be one of those 12? Because Paul is a 13th. And the answer is, I don't know. My guess is no, but I don't know, but that's just a guess. We'll see when we get there. But the point is, this is a limited limited number of people. The 12 apostles of the Lamb. So friends, you've got these doctrines that we believe that are first order doctrines. We believe the Bible, we believe Christ, His person and work, and then there are things that are second order They don't determine whether you get to heaven, but nonetheless, they're still important. Is God going to fulfill the promises that he has made with regard to his people, the land, and all of that? And then this issue of the scriptures and their sufficiency. The scriptures having been completed, having been written under the supervision of these apostles who are specially gifted by God, having been given to us now, with them dead and off the scene, What do we need now? God has bequeathed to us his word. And that is sufficient for us. And my concern about our friends who say, you know, I have a private prayer language where God reveals things to me when I'm in my prayer closet. If this doesn't mean anything to you, that's okay. But there are people who say that. You know, God speaks to me in various ways. My concern with that is, you know, again, not that anybody's going to hell or any of that. It just affects something that really ought to be precious to us. God has spoken and given us everything we need in his word. And so next week, we will continue that, and then I'll talk about one more doctrine, that you can go to heaven if you don't have it right, but it's still very important. And that's the issue of, did God make the world in seven 24-hour, seven 24-hour days? Did you all know we have people, good people, who say that the days in Genesis were not really regular days, but that they were long ages, that they were well what does that affect? Does that affect anything? You can still go to heaven, but it affects a number of things. We'll talk about that next week. Okay? Let's thank the Lord and we'll be done. Father, we thank you for this time to be able to concentrate our minds upon these issues that are second level, sometimes third level, but nonetheless important because they're related to eternal verities, eternal truths with regard to our salvation, with regard to the word that contains the truth of that salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so, Lord, help us to be diligent and to be discerning. Help us as well to be kind and loving to brothers and sisters with whom we disagree. We look forward to the day when we're all straightened out, myself included, and the things that I don't understand or things that I think I understand that I'm wrong about, that, that I will be straightened out on. And that we will be with brothers and sisters who now we don't see eye to eye. Nonetheless, we love them and we wish God's speed to them. But help us to be discerning. To not take a simplistic approach to simply good or bad, but see the gradations in between. And the connections between those truths that are of eternal importance and then those truths that are related to them. All of which are given to us in your word. Help us as we study this week. Help us as we walk uh, with you in our homes and workplaces and neighborhoods. Help us to be a light in darkness and to be a faithful witness for, for Jesus Christ. Bring us back safely next Lord's Day, we ask you, in the name of Jesus. Amen.